Every once in a while, I, I kind of wonder uh, about what I have and what I don't have and, and about the things that I have. Sometimes I, I find myself wondering if I w- would have something different if I didn't know what you had. Or, or maybe perhaps I would spend my money on things differently if I didn't know what you spent your, your money on. It, it ever feel like this? That maybe sometimes I, I just wonder, like, like if I wouldn't own all that I own if I didn't see what everybody else owns. Or maybe I'd spend my money just perhaps a little bit differently if I didn't see what everybody else was kind of spending their money on. And maybe sometimes I feel like, like maybe would I have saved a little more money if I saw other people perhaps save a little more? Or, or how about this one? <clears throat> maybe I would have done something different with my money. Like, like would I have actually given money away to other people or, or more people if I saw more people do that? You see, we kind of fall into this little bit of a trap, and and the truth is this, and it's a struggle for a little bit of all of us, is that I know too much about what others have that I don't have. And because I tend to know too much about what other people have, there's this little bit of this thing that kind of wells up in me that wants to have what other people have that I don't have yet. And it causes me to make some bad decisions. It causes me to maybe spend a little too much or care a little too much about perhaps what other people have. And the interesting thing, and this is me perhaps, not just you, is that this kind of lures me to the edge of making some really bad decisions some really bad financial decisions. It kind of lures me to the edge of going into excess credit card debt or or buying things perhaps I don't need to impress people I don't really know. Did you ever feel that way? You see, it lures me to a dangerous situation financially and it lures me in because it's almost like there's this appetite inside me to have more. And, and we know the definition of an appetite, and an appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. That's the nature of it. It's never fully and finally satisfied. I mean, that's why you eat dinner, and then like 30 or 40 minutes later, you're like standing in the fridge. Is there anything to eat? Because your appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. And, and it be, kind of becomes this way with, with our stuff, that, that, that I, I kind of want more, and, and I'm kind of, uh, the, you know, the new iPhone, and the, and the new iPhone, and then the newer iPhone, and then there's, this, there's the thing in me that just wants to, to upgrade and get more and kind of consume more, because my appetite for things, for stuff, is never fully and finally satisfied. So basically, I kind of think I, maybe I need some counseling. Maybe you feel the same way I do. Maybe you need some counseling. Maybe, maybe when it comes to our stuff, there's a little bit of an issue. Today, we're going to talk about uh, uh, part four in our guardrail series. We're going to talk about uh, finances. This is going to be a little interesting conversation for us. But, but as we get into this topic, if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you forgot along the way, um, or maybe you've been wondering the whole time, like, what is the, the definition of a guardrail? Here's the definition. You could probably recite it with me. You probably know it by now. A guardrail is a system to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And we know this, that guardrails aren't placed in the danger zone, they're placed in the safety zone. And no one kind of argues with that logic. We're, we're happy that it's in the safety zone and it keeps us from going into the more dangerous area. Guardrails are designed to minimize damage. You may incur some damage. You may probably have seen this in accidents where people bump up against guardrails. There's some damage, but hey, they're walking away because guardrails are designed to kind of direct and protect us. But as we discovered through this series, is that like highways, byways, roadways, they're not the only place we need guardrails. That that perhaps we could use some guardrails in our own life. That that, that perhaps our our greatest regret, the thing that that we regret the most, the thing that we've done, that perhaps we wish we could go back and change, we wouldn't have done if we had some guardrails in our life. 
Maybe some financial guardrails, maybe some professional guardrails, some relational guardrails, maybe some guardrails in your marriage. That perhaps if, if we just set up this, this system to keep us from going too far into the danger zone or too far off the ledge over a cliff, we wouldn't have that greatest regret. You see, a guardrail is a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. It's a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. It's basically my way of saying, hey, when I'm getting too close to someplace I don't want to be, it's kind of like, like alarm bells go off in my conscience or alarm bells go off in my heart. Alarm bells go off in my soul. They kind of keep me from going too far. And the interesting thing about a guardrail is it's not, it's not universal. I get to decide where I want to be and how far I want to go, and you get to decide. I, I don't have any right in the world to tell you where your guardrail needs to be. But I can encourage you. You all need some. Because the guardrail will keep you from going too far where you don't want to be, too far off the road. So, so like when you're about to do something really bad, this little alarm goes off and says, hey, Jim, you're going someplace you don't want to know. You need to, you need to like course correct and get back on track before you incur more damage or worship before you hurt yourself or someone else. And that's what a guardrail does, is it keeps you from hurting yourself or from hurting someone else you love. So today we're going to talk about financial guardrails. And if you're not a Christian, you picked a great week to be with us. If, if you're not a Christian and you're not a Jesus follower, some of what I'm going to say, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to you, although I would encourage you to apply it, but I have no authority over your life. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you this is what you have to do, but I, I think you should probably do it because it's incredible wisdom and it comes from Jesus. And, and I just think anything Jesus says is pretty important. I mean, if, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and then do it, you should probably listen to what he says. <clears throat> but if you're a Christian... You're on the hook. If you're a Christian, this is what Jesus says we have to do. If you're a Christ follower, this is what, how we actually have to live. And, and it's gonna be, there's going to be some tension. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. I, I do want to let you off the hook a little bit. And that's the, that the majority of people who even claim to be Christ followers, they don't always do what Jesus says. But I would guess that if you don't, you're headed for ruin. And you're headed for disaster. So I think it's important as we have this conversation to, to, to really understand what does Jesus say? What does Jesus want me to do? And, and if you're not, again, if you're not a Jesus follower, I think these are just really important wise words that you should apply to your life because it's going to completely kind of flip the table around on how we live financially and how we consider our money and what we do with our money. And then the last thing, and this is really interesting for me as a pastor, <clears throat> anytime someone comes in and says that they want to talk about something or that they have a problem with their kids or there's something they've never told anybody before and you know it's kind of serious, you ever get those calls where someone says, I got to tell you something and you know it's, it's a little bit dark, it's a little bit secret. Anytime that comes up, it always kind of relates to two things and it always comes back, almost always comes back to sex and money. It almost always comes back to somebody, some way, ha having maybe an indirect connection or an indirect problem with sex or money. And, and what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament and what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught, taught, a lot of it has to do with sex and money, but those tend to be the things that we tend to ignore and people don't tend to talk about. Preachers don't tend to preach about a lot because we just kind of feel like, like I, I don't want to know. I, I don't want to go there. Like, like that's my business. That's my life. And, and what's interesting is we ignore it. We kind of stiff arm it. We push it to the side, but those tend to be the things that people have the most problems with. Because people grow up feeling this way and kind of living this way. The church is against sex, and the church just wants my money. That's kind of the reputation. But we, last week, we spent the whole week talking about sex. So if you find that interesting, you should go watch last week's message. 
I'm not going to repeat the whole thing for you, but it, it was a good one. And I think it's important for you to know. And as we talked about last week, the church or a church that, that really kind of wants us to, to follow Jesus and wants to follow his teachings and all of his teachings, that church is not against sex because God isn't against sex. Because as we talked about last week, God created sex. I mean, you remember that story? It was kind of an interesting one where God created everything. He looked down and said, I got a great idea. And the angel's like, what is it, God? And he's like, oh, you're not going to understand, but it's good. And then God created sex. There was none, and then there was. God created it. It's awesome. It's for our enjoyment and our pleasure. <clears throat> but when it comes to these two topics, when it comes to the idea of sex and money, most of us kind of stiff arm it. Most of us kind of keep it at bay. Most of us don't want to know. What does Jesus have to say about that? But here's the deal. When it comes to your money, this is something you need to know. Jesus doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't need your money. The, the, the church doesn't need your money, or at least shouldn't need your money. It, does, it shouldn't want your money. This isn't about us wanting to take something from you. This is about God wanting something for you. When it comes to your finances, when it comes to money in church, and I know when it comes to money in church, people get all nervous when the pastor starts talking about money. I, I want to put all of you at ease right now. We're not taking a special offering. We don't take offerings like that. So you can just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. It will get a little awkward, but it's not going to get awkward that way. God doesn't want your money. Jesus doesn't need your money. He doesn't want to take something from you. When it comes to your money, he wants something for you. Because Jesus sees money in a very different way than I think most of us see it. That when it comes to money, there's some kind of competition. That when it comes to your heart, there's some kind of competition. And the reason we need to have some guardrails isn't to keep us necessarily from financial ruin because some of you, you, you may be financially set. You may have saved money. You may have a lot of money in, in, in your 401k. You may have paid off all your old bills and your loans. You may have paid off your house and your car. You may have saved up like all your kids' college expenses or your kids already moved on so you have no more college expenses. You may feel like, like financially, I, I'm secure. But according to Jesus, when it comes to money, you could still be in a ditch financially. You see, this isn't necessarily about how to keep ourselves out of debt or how to keep ourselves out of bankruptcy. This isn't that kind of message. In a few weeks, we're going to have a, a series that I'm developing that's, that's going to talk all about finances and that kind of thing and, and, and how that's more like life application. This one, it's a little bit deeper and it's a little more personal. It's, it's a little more about you than it really is about our money. You see, according to Jesus... You can have all the money in the world and still be in the ditch financially, still have driven that car off the ditch. Because when it comes to Jesus, it really isn't just about money. And if you're a Christian, you need to tune in and you need to hear what he's going to say. If you're not a Christian, you should still tune in because I think these words are incredibly wise and will help you make the best financial decisions of your life. So here's what Jesus says. This is found in Matthew 15. One day he says this, Matthew 6 rather. No one, and that means everyone, no one can serve two masters. To which when we hear this, we say, I don't serve one master. What are you kind of talking about, Jesus? I mean, we don't think about masters that way. I don't have a master. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm an adult. I have a checkbook. I drive a car. I have a, an apartment or a house. I don't have a master. What do you, what do you mean ja master, Jesus? But Jesus here is being really shrewd, and he's kind of baiting you and inviting you into this conversation <clears throat> so he can show you a little more. He says, either, talking about masters, either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. 
To which we say, like, what are you talking about? What is this, like, one and other and despise and, and, and hate or, or love? Like, like, Jesus, I don't even understand really what you're talking about here. But that word, that, that, that Greek word for master, it means, or it's the Greek word kurios, it means one who is in charge by virtue or possession or ownership. You see, when we think about it, master, we kind of get this idea of a boss. See, when Jesus talk, is talking about master, it's really not about boss. It's more about ownership. It's more about possession. It's more about what actually owns you, what actually possesses you. It's not really about like you're working a job for someone else. It's about somebody who actually has control over you. That somebody actually has possession over you. And he's saying you can't be possessed by more than one thing, by more than one person. And I know some of you, you, maybe you're like me, you feel like you've met somebody who's been possessed by a whole lot of things. That's a different conversation. He's saying you can't be possessed by more than one thing. You can't be owned by more than one thing. And then, and then he does this incredible thing. He, he, he kind of turns the tables on us because you think he's kind of leading us down like you'll love one and you'll hate the other and you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and Satan. That, that's kind of where our mind naturally leads us. But Jesus doesn't go there because Jesus is awesome and Jesus is wise and Jesus is Jesus, and he's always right. He baits us in, and he says this. You cannot serve God and money, or God and wealth, or God, that, that Greek word there can actually be translated stuff. You can't serve God and your stuff. You can't serve God and your possessions. That, that when it comes to our relationship with money, it's almost like, like the, the, one of these things has a hold, has a grip, ha, has possession of us, actually owns us and actually controls us. He says that when it comes to your life and how you live, th th there's going to be two masters and you're going to get to choose kind of which one you kind of fall in, which one owns, which one possesses you. And it's not God and Satan. He said, it's God and your stuff. And I think this is really fascinating. That when it comes to this primary issue of us, of, of, of our heart, that the primary competitor for our heart isn't Satan, it isn't lust, it isn't women, it isn't music. He said the primary competitor for your heart is your stuff. It is the things that you think you own, but as we're going to find out, it's more like the things actually own you. See, again, it's not that Jesus is concerned because Jesus wants your money. His real concern is this. Do we own our money or does our money or our stuff own us? Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? Do we possess our stuff or does our stuff possess us? Do we use our stuff or does our stuff necessarily use us? And the reason is Jesus follows, we need these kind of financial guardrails, is that money and what money promises, that, that, that joy, that, that uh, consumption, that, that, the, the things, the stuff, all the stuff that money promises is actually the, the biggest competitor for the thing Jesus cares about the most. And that's you. That's your heart. That when it comes to you, Jesus is more concerned about your heart than he is your money. And the greatest competitor for your heart is the things you think you own, but perhaps might actually own you. You see, when it comes to, when it comes to our money without guardrails, it's either going to lead us off the cliff of consumption or it's going to have us bump up against the wall of hoarding. 
Right? I mean, they're both kind of fear-based where consumption is, is I'm just going to consume and it's all about me and I'm going to consume and I'm going to buy and I'm going to spend and it's about me and I need more and I need more and I need more and I drive off the cliff. Or it's about hoarding and it's, it's, it's that kind of fear-based idea of, of hoarding of I'm not going to have enough or we're going to have enough. I don't think I'm going to have enough. We need to save. We need to store. We need, you know, storm cellars and, and canned goods and bottles of water. We just, we just, we, we got to hoard. We got to hoard. I don't know if I'm going to have enough. What about my future? I need more. And really, both of those, it's all about me. And they're both based from this one little word that none of us really like. We don't want to talk about it. We don't really see it in the mirror. It's really easy to see in someone else, but it's not always easy to see in ourselves. And that word is greed. See, both of these are kind of based out of greed, where it's all about me. Consuming is, it's all about me now. I want to consume. It's about me. I want to consume. It's about me. I mean, after all, it, it, it's mine, right? It came into my hands. It's mine and I own it. I, I worked for it. That paycheck was mine. That 401k is mine. It, it, it's, it's, it's mine. So I get to consume it. Or it, it's, it, it's the fear-based about me later. In, in 10 years, will I have enough? In, in 15 years, will I have enough? What if, you know, there's a nuclear holocaust? Are we going to have enough food to eat forever? And we worry and we worry and we hoard or we consume. And what we're saying is it's either about me now or it's about me later. And all of this stems from greed. See, a while ago, I kind of gave you this definition for greed, and I don't know if you remember it or not. I I do because I I didn't come up with it, but I needed a really simple definition and because uh, simple definitions are easy to remember, and I'm not that smart. So I, I found this really simple definition of greed. So I'm going to give it to you. I, I think this is really helpful. Greed is this. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed is simply the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Often when we think of greed, what we think of, of we get these ideas of, of like Scrooge, right? Like that, that like old miserly guy sitting behind a desk counting his money and never getting married because he didn't have time and never having kids because they cost too much. And he just, it was all about hoarding. And, and, and we had this idea that that's kind of what, what greed was. But greed is really just an assumption. And, and you know what happens when we assume, right? It's the same way with greed. We just assume that everything that comes in is mine. We just assume that, that everything that I work for, that everything that comes into my paycheck, that everything that comes into my 401k, we just kind of assume that it's all mine. So, so if it's mine, then I get to consume it. If, if I work for it, it's mine. If it's in the paycheck, it's mine. If it's my inheritance, it's mine. If I've won the lottery, I mean, clearly it's God's will. It's mine. It's just the assumption that everything that comes my way, that everything that kind of comes into my bank account, that everything that comes into my check is all for my consumption. And just like assuming anything else, assuming that does the same thing for you. You see, greed is just the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Either I'm going to consume it now or I'm going to consume it later and hoard. Either I'm going to consume it now or I'm going to consume it later. But either way, it's greed. And either way, it's all about me. And here's the tragedy. And you probably ne- never thought about it this way. Here, here's the tragedy, tragedy in this. I mean, who really thinks about stuff this way except for a guy like me who sits down and literally tries to think up stuff like this. But if you continue to live this way, if you live like everything you have, that everything that comes into your possession is for your consumption, here, here's what you're actually doing. You're living as if all there is to life is life. You're living as if all there is to this life is just this. And I'm guessing that, that if you're a Christ follower, you know there's something more than that. 
And even if you're not a Christ follower, even if you're not sure you know, about religion or maybe you're another religion, but, but perhaps there's something on the inside of you that just feels like, like you know, I've always felt like, like there's got to be something more. Like it can't just be this. There's got to be something, something more to this life than simply this life. Like, like perhaps maybe it's not all about me. But if we live this way, what we're saying is it's all about me. And we're kind of living a life independent of God. I'm assuming that everything I get is for me. It's either for me now or it's for me later. But then something interesting happens, and it kind of happens to all of us. Trouble comes. Like trouble always comes, doesn't it? Maybe it's something you did or maybe it's something you didn't do. Perhaps it's something you did, like, you know, you spent too much money or, you know, you got a little too overzealous with your credit cards or you bought too much house or leased too much car or took out too many loans or, you know, went to too many schools and colleges because you couldn't make your mind up and now you have all this debt. Or maybe it's something you didn't do, like, like you got fired at work or they were doing layoffs or, you know, your partner up and ran away with his money or, you know, the industry just kind of flopped. But either way, trouble comes as it comes for all of us, no matter who you are. But when trouble comes, here's what I find really interesting. Whether we believe in God or we don't believe in God, do you know what we do? Whether we're religious or we're not religious, when trouble comes, do you know what we do? We pray, don't we? We all kind of pray and we all kind of invite God in. And maybe your prayer sounds something like this, like, like it's a little whisper on the weight of a bank, like, please God, let there be more zeros there than there were last time. Or maybe it's like, oh God, you're like on the floor. God, it's Jim, you haven't heard from me in a while. Like, like God, I just, I need your help. And, and I'm on like, like the edge of this cliff of financial disaster and ruin. And, and, and God, I just, I need you to come in. I need you to do something. And it's almost like in this, this moment of disparity, this moment of, of emergency and immediacy, we kind of invite God into our finances. And say, hey, God, I didn't want you here before, but now there's some trouble. So would you come over and let me kind of tell you this story? Here's what, can you believe my partner ran away with all our money, God? And and I know you haven't been here before, but would you do something for me this time? You see, it's almost like we're saying, hey, God, I, I chose the wrong master. I chose the wrong master, God. And, and, and now, in this emergency, would you come in? So here's my question. If, if in that like, moment of emergency, if that moment that, of trouble that we all have at some point in our lives, if we're all going to pray and invite God in then, why wouldn't we just invite God in now? Why would we wait for disaster? Why would we wait for trouble? Why would we wait for hardship? What if we just invited God into the mess now before it gets there? I mean, we're all going to do it anyway. And statistics show you don't even have to believe in God. But if financial ruin comes, somehow our instinct is to pray to a God we don't even believe in. So whether you're a Christ follower or not, the challenge for you today is, would you just invite God in now? And not wait for the disaster that's around the corner. You see, the guardrails are the guardrails, really. It's, it's just kind of one guardrail for this. The, the guardrail for this, this whole thing is something we've talked about before. It's something I, I live my life by, and I encourage you to live your life by. But it's going to be really countercultural because this isn't the way people live. As a matter of fact, it's the total opposite of the way people live. If, if, when you look at people now, and maybe this is you, maybe you find yourself kind of identifying this way. But this is how people who are mastered by their money live, or people who, who are kind of owned by their money live. They live, they save, and then they give. 
when people are mastered by their money, they live and they consume and, and they just do all they want. And, and maybe there's like a saving plan at work where, you know, they'll take like pennies or a few dollars out of your paycheck every week. So there's, there's a little bit of savings there, but, but I'm going to live mostly and, and maybe sometimes I'll save. And then if there's anything left at the end, perhaps I'll give. You know, like maybe if there's like a, a, a tsunami or an earthquake or, or there's a really bad hurricane or, or someone in my neighborhood, I find out somebody needs something. Like, like I'll, I'll do the right thing and I'll, I'll try to give some of what I have left. You see, this kind of living is basically saying, money, you're my master. Greed, you're my master. Stuff, you're my master. It's all about my consumption. It's me first. Me second, and if there's anything left, then everybody else. You see, when you live that way, you're mastered. You're living as if all there is to this life is life itself. You're living as if God has no interest and no idea about what's going on in your financial life until there's a problem and you invite him in. You're living as if God doesn't care about that at all. You're living as if God is somehow independent of that part of your life. See, but, but when you do, when you begin to get the, uh, the idea, and we're going to look at how Jesus, what Jesus actually says about this, but when you begin to apply Jesus' words to your money, it begins to flip things right around. When you begin to master your money, this is how you live. You give, you save, and then you live. You give, you decide first, foremost, I'm going to give. When my money comes in, I, I realize that I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fool. I, I'm not making this assumption that it's all for my consumption. I realize that I've got to do something with my money first. So, but, but as that money comes in, the first thing I do is I put some money out, some money outside of my world into somebody else's world. I'm going to do something for somebody else first, and then I'll focus on me, and then I'll save, and then I'll find a way, and I know this is hard for us, I'll find a way to live on the rest. I'll give, I'll save, and then I can consume my heart out. And when you begin to live that way, you begin to do what Jesus wants you to do with your money all along. You know, and I, when it came to this, this idea of this message and, and how we kind of talk about this, I know everyone gets nervous when the pastor talks about money. And I, I kept thinking, like, what can I do to, to try and show them that this isn't about money, that this isn't really ab about you giving money to the local church or us needing money. And, and so here, here's what I want to do. My wife and I decided for, from day one, when we first had kids, when we first had our girls, we talked about how we wanted to teach them about money because my wife is really good at saving and I'm really, really, really good at living. <clears throat> really good. And, and the two of us, we kind of, we kind of walked, walked that balance of, of hoarding with my saving wife and living or consuming with, with me. And what we realized was this wasn't a priority. So, 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 and I'll share this in uh, that series that's coming up, our, our, our kind of story of how we got there. But we began to flip the table around and we made our top priority, giving. And then we learned how to save, or I learned how to save, I should say. And my wife is learning how to live. And, and we decided, hey, if that's how we're going to live, let's teach our daughters to do the same thing. So as our daughters grow up, we've been teaching them this. And our oldest, uh, Isabella, she's just kind of getting to the age where we can start doing this. So we decided when they get old enough, we're going to put three jars in their room. And the three jars, if you could put that, that graphic up for me, three jars are give, save, and live. They're going to be written on it. And every time they get money, and they get, I mean, I, my kids, and maybe your kids this way, it's unreal when, how they get money. I mean, they get money for like Easter, and they get, they get money for like every weird little holiday, someone's sending them a check, or grandma comes up and gives them money, and you know, she didn't know grandpa already gave them money, so they end up with like three times the amount of money they should have. And it's, it's odd. 
<clears throat> my kids more often have more money on them than I do. So when they get money, here's what I've been teaching them. When you get it, the first thing I want you to do is put some in this jar. And if I have to, we have change, we have nickels, we have quarters, we have dimes. 10% goes here, 10% goes here. And then this, this is like bubblegum money. This is like we're going to go to the drugstore. We're going we're gonna to go get a toy. We're going to go have fun. This, this is, you get to consume your heart out. But what I want you to do first, I want you to learn to give first. This jar is going to go up and down because you're going to put money in and then you're going to take money out and give it to someone. Or you're going to take money out and, and put it to the church or take money out and give it to a family who you know is in need. This jar is just going to continue to build. And then this jar, it might go up, but more often than not, it's always going to go down because that's how we live. Now, why would I teach my kids to do that? Is it because I need their money or the church needs their money? I mean, really, if that were the case, then what I would do is just sneak into their room at night and empty all their change into a bag. And when they questioned about it, I could just say things like, you know, well, it's the tooth fairy. She was a little upset. You had a cavity. So she just came to collect. I mean, really, if, if it was about me taking their money, then what I would say is, hey, that's not yours. I need to pay the electrical bill at church. Just put it, you know, come on. Give it to the pastor. You see, it's not about the church needing their money. It's not about the church wanting their money. What I realize is I don't want my kids growing up with their stuff owning them. I don't want my children growing up with this idea that somehow all that matters in life is my stuff and my possessions and the things I own that really own me. And the only way I know how to do that is to put someone else first every single time you get money. You see, this isn't about them, uh, about us or our church needing or taking money. This is about your heart and about who owns you and about who possesses you. And Jesus is so concerned about your heart that the only way he knows how to make sure that money isn't owning you is to have you give first, save second, and learn to live on the rest. Give first save second, and learn to live on the rest. This is the key to financial independence. Independence from the belief that life equals stuff. Because as we know, parents, as you know, your life is your time, not your stuff. I mean, someday, and, and I'll just, we'll be honest, 100% of you, someday you're all gonna die. And all your stuff's gonna be left behind. And it's going to mean nothing to anyone. You see, life isn't stuff. Life is your time. And, and we'll say this, like 99% of you, I would guess even 100% of you, you're going to run out of time before you ever run out of stuff. So why do we make life so much about the things we own and the things we consume? Life isn't about stuff. You see, when when we live that way, that life's about stuff, we're living a life independent of God. We're living a life independent of God having everything. And that's not what I want for my children. I want my children to say, God, I I want you in every area of my life. I invite you into every area. I want a life for them to live that models independence from an independent life or a life independent of God. I want them to model a life of independence from a life independent of God. So that they are always concerned and always thinking, God, like, what's next? God, yes. Now, what do you want me to do? God, it's, it's, it's all your money. You just tell me where you want it to go. It has nothing to do with the church or me wanting something from them. But more wanting something for them. 
And this habit, this guardrail, ensures this just that. To live a life dependent upon God. To live a life where we say, God, I want you in everything. I want you in every area. Don't just stay out of this. I'm inviting you into this now. So that before it gets too bad, before trouble comes my way, you're ready. You're here. And you're involved. But, but who, really, who cares what I think? Let's see what Jesus has to say. Your heavenly father, your heavenly father doesn't want money to win with you. Your heavenly father doesn't want money to control you. Your heavenly father doesn't want, want you to be a slave to consumption. And I don't want that for you either. That's why I taught my children that. I don't want my kids and I don't want you to be a slave to consumption. I don't want you living with that assumption your whole life. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then a few minutes later in the same sermon, the same message, he says this. So in light of all that, don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? Don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? You see, in this first generation, that they live with that fear every day because they didn't have refrigeration like we did. The only things that kind of kept for long periods of time were grain and wine. So every day they were worried, what are we going to eat? He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what are you going to drink or what are we going to wear? Because clothes were extremely expensive. Jesus is saying, look, I, we, I already know you need all that stuff. I know you worry about that stuff. I know that's on your mind and it's on your heart and you're always kind of worried. But what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink and, and what are we going to wear? But I don't want you to worry about that. And here's why. Because the pagans worry about all these things. And, and pagans, like we use it in a different term, I think, than how they actually meant. A pagan in this day was anyone who believed in multiple gods. They didn't believe in the one true God. So for Jews, anyone who wasn't a Jew was a pagan. And Jesus said, I don't want you worrying like the pagans worried because they're trying, they're trying to please their gods, gods that don't love them, gods that aren't concerned about them, gods that don't want to have a personal relationship with them, gods that just kind of manipulate people and toy with people and, and play with their emotions. I don't want you to worry about that because that's what they worry about. They spend all of their time worrying. They spend all of their try- time trying to get the gods to do their bidding. They offer sacrifices, sometimes even children sacrifices. They do all of this stuff, worrying and trying to to get the gods to do their bidding because they believe that their gods don't care about them. Not so with you. You have a father, a heavenly father, who is not only concerned about you, but wants to be involved in your life. You don't have to worry because he already knows. You don't have to spend your time worrying. He says, and your heavenly father, and this is the game changer, your heavenly father knows that you already need all that stuff. And here's the thing, Christians, do you really believe that? I mean, that's not my words. That's written in red in your Bible. That's Jesus' words. Do you really believe that your heavenly father already knows all the stuff you need? That would be a game changer in your life. And I'm telling you, the moment you wrap your heart and your belief system around that, that changes how you live. And it changes how you think about stuff. It changes how you think about money. Jesus goes on. He says, but, but instead of worrying, 
instead of spending all your time consuming, instead of spending all your time hoarding out of fear for the future, instead of doing all that, here's what I want you to do. Take out a pen and paper, and I'm going to give you a little formula. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the plan. Instead of doing those things, here's how you're going to know that I'm involved. Here's how you're going to know that I want to be a part of all of your life. He says, but seek first. That is kind of reorder, rearrange. Seek first. Put something else as the top priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And now for us, we don't, I mean, we don't think about kingdoms. Like we don't even really think there should be kingdoms. But, but in Jesus' day, that, this is what it was. It, they, they had this, this idea of kingdoms and, and this idea that God was kind of establishing his kingdom and that his kingdom was very different than how kingdoms typically ran, that all the money was, was for me and it was for my consumption. God was setting up a different kind of kingdom and God's kingdom was others first. As God's kingdom basically said this, that what is right for someone else is the right thing. God's kingdom said the best thing for you to do is what's best for someone else. And, and if you can do this, if you can seek first his kingdom, if you can give first, if you can make your top priority, what's going on with someone else, maybe in your community or, or in your state or around the world, if you could say, hey, it's not about me, God, but it's about you. And I'm showing you it's about you by putting your kingdom first and being concerned about someone else and giving. Jesus says, then all those other things that you worried about, will be given to you as well. All those other things that you think about, that you're concerned about, they come as well. But you gotta seek me first. You gotta make my kingdom your primary concern. You've gotta give, you've gotta save, and you gotta live. And I know for some of us that sounds really hard. But the truth is, God's not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. I mean, what's the most famous verse in all of the Bible? For God so loved the world that he... That was like three of you. I know more of you know that. Try that again. For God so loved the world that he... His only son. That he gave. That he gave. You see, God modeled for you exactly what he wants from you. It's others first. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't that change the world? Wouldn't selflessness solve everything? I mean, imagine, just, just imagine, like, and I know some of you, you're, you're not, you don't have like really creative imaginations. For a minute, if you have to even close your eyes, imagine what the world would be like if every single one of us lived our lives thinking the right thing to do is what was right for you. If thinking the best decision I could make is what's best for you. What if every single person lived that way? I mean, really, selflessness would solve everything. And it's like God saying, hey, welcome to my kingdom. That's what it's about. That's what I've been trying to do. That's what I've been trying to establish. It's not about you. It's about others first. And when you invite me into your financial life, when you invite me in, if you can put other people first, if you can give, if you can say, hey, God, I know it's not about me and it's about you. And I'm going to take the first of what comes in and I'm going to send it out, get it out of my world into someone else's world. God's saying, man, that's the formula. That's the code. You got it right. That's my kingdom. And when you can do that, this other stuff comes. And then you begin to save. And really, saving is really caring about other people too. It's like saving for your future so you don't have to grow up, you know, 
or your kids grow up and you, you can't afford anything, so you move in with your children and become a burden on them. I save because when I retire one day, I want to be able to take care of myself instead of having to, my kids take care of me. So you're loving other people first there as well by saving. So you give, you save, and then you learn to live on the rest. You learn to live on the rest. Because for some of us, it's going to take some change. For some of us, it's going to be reworking how we live and how we spend and what we do with our money. You see, this really isn't about God wanting your money from you. It's about God wanting something so much better for you. And he realizes the biggest, the biggest thing that's going to block you from getting there is being controlled by money and your stuff. So here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian, you have to do this. This is, this is not from me. This is from God. If you're a Christian, you need to decide a percentage. What comes out of my check first? Where is it going? How is it getting there? You need to decide what is coming out first. And you need to give it to your local church. You need to be involved about what God's doing in the world. And if you belong to another church, send it there. If you think I'm saying this because I'm only concerned about this church, I challenge you, send it somewhere else. It's not about here. It's not that we need your money or we want your money at all. We want something for you. So if you want to take me at my word, you decide. Where's that money going? Pick two charities that you love the most. Charities that are near and dear to your heart. Maybe they're involved with foster care, with kids or education and send that money out to them. But even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God or any of this, I would encourage you, you need to have a plan to support your local church because one day you're gonna need them and it's gonna be there because somebody funded it. You need to have a plan. What are you going to do? For me, I grew up being taught how to tithe. I grew up in my first job, you know, I made, my dad made sure I got a checkbook and that made me feel real adult. I like checks because I don't feel like an adult often, but you know, I feel like an adult when I'm writing a check for some reason. So when we started this new thing here, we talked about this a while ago about automated giving. You can go online and you can sign up to give and it can actually come out whenever you decide and any amount you decide, you can do it monthly or weekly or I get paid every other week. So every other week, the first thing that comes out of my paycheck Friday morning is money that goes to our church, to this church. And it was really hard for me to do because I was so used to writing checks. But when it happened, like when we kind of initiated, I was like, this makes so much sense. And it's so much easier. This allows me every single week to prioritize. The most important thing in my life with my money is making sure some of it goes out to someone else, to what God's doing in this community, in this state, across the world. You have to have a plan. And so many of you have done that. So many of you have been a part of that. And I need to say thank you. I can't do a message like this without saying thank you because so many of you have done that and you've allowed this church to continue to do so much in our community with families and with children, with the things we have planned in the summer. And we couldn't do it without you having a plan, without you following the plan that Jesus set for you to give first, to save second, and to learn to live on the rest. And because you've been faithful, we've been allowed to create a church where people love to attend because you followed the path Jesus set out for you to give first. Have a plan. Where's that money going? How's it getting there? To save, to save for my future, to save for my retirement, and then to learn to live on the rest. And when you do that, Jesus said, and all those other things you're worried about, they'll come as well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for 
uh, the incredible truth in your word. I, I know sometimes it's so hard for us when we talk about money because it's so deeply personal and we want to kind of keep you out. But I pray you'd give us the wisdom today to invite you in. And that for some of us, God, as we begin to look at this and maybe we think about making these kinds of changes in our life, God, that you would give us the wisdom to do it. You would even show us, God, creatively how to rearrange and reorder our life and our finances so that we can follow your plan, your kingdom's plan of putting other people first, of putting you first, and then me second. And I pray, God, even I know what's going to get tough, so give them the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.